Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey friends, it's Jason here. Welcome back to The Smattering. We got something special we're doing here, Jeff. Jeff, we're doing a two-parter, right? Our first two-part episode. It feels, feels very special. Yeah, it is going to be special. We, we interviewed uh, Jim Gillies. You're going to learn who Jim Gillies is more. So again, it's going to be a two-parter. So you're going to get the first one's about 45 minutes or so. And then there'll be the second part of it that's going to be a little bit shorter. So stay tuned and enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we like to ask and answer the important questions about investing. Friends, I think you're going to be excited about this one. Go ahead and just sit down and buckle in because there might be some times that you want to stand up in anger or excitement. I'm Jason Hall, the voice of the aristocracy, as I have been dubbed by Jeff Santoro, the voice of the people. Jeff, how are you doing? I am doing well. I'm very much looking forward to this episode. Uh, so I'll just uh, let's just get right into it. Why, why, are we, why are you looking forward to it? Who's, who's somebody else is here, right? Yes, we have a uh, our first guest ever, and we picked a good one. We have uh, Jim Gillies here with us, and uh, I am someone I've been I've respected as an investor for a while. Um, heard him on many. Many different podcasts and uh, full live appearances, so uh, I'm happy to have this conversation. Hey, Jim. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm uh, wondering if I can live up to the hype. I suspect I won't, but uh, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's give it the old college try, I suppose. Shit, Jim. I'm about to double down on the hype. I'm going to tell you right, right now. So those of you <laughs> who don't know who Jim Gillies is, who are not familiar with The Motley Fool, haven't seen him on Motley Fool Live... Jim Gillies is is an analyst and an advisor with Motley Fool Canada. He's been with the Fool for the better part of 20 years, not quite 20 years at this point. But I will, Jim. I'm going to make you blush. I'm going to make you all shucks here. Uh-huh. But if you're not if you're not the best investor that I know, you're one of the best investors I know. Okay. And my goal is not plaudits here. My goal is not plaudits because, folks, as as you listen to this, you'll find that. Jim is a very direct, honest dude. One of the things that I appreciate about him, but I want to talk about how Jim, how you've evolved your history. You know, you started out as an engineer, right? Doing engineering things for companies that needed to pay people to engineer. That's what I heard. You moved on from that. <laughs> you went. You went to the fool as a writer first, right? Briefly, yes. Briefly, yep. Very briefly, because I'm guessing some really smart people. And again, like you talked about this in our pre-planning. The Fool is a smaller organization at the, at the time, but you were identified pretty quickly. Hey, this is somebody that knows their shit. We should probably get him in our analyst development program. So, at that, so from there, how how did it go from the engineer doing engineering things to writing for the Fool to being there's some there's some blanks in there. Can you can you <laughs> fill them in? How did you become an investor? Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I, as you mentioned, I, I've been with a fool. Uh, it's now about seventeen and a half years. Um, it is it is the place where I will where I will finish my career. You know, all God's willing. Um, I greatly enjoyed uh, the vast majority of my tenure there. 
Um, but yeah, before that, I've got a couple of uh, highly useful engineering degrees hanging on my wall that I make no use whatsoever of today. Um, I mean, I suppose if uh, I've got environmental engineering. I'm, I'm betting that, 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 that your time in engineering school affected the way that you think and the way that you approach things. It, it, it does. And you're probably yeah. still getting some kind of a return on the investment in those in those degrees. Well, I mean, I, I think that one of the commonalities with engineers is, uh, you know, engineering is very much a, a teach you how to think matrix or a framework. Um, the math can be difficult uh, occasionally. Um, I, I have very fond memories of writing exams that I haven't the faintest idea what I was talking about because uh, the math was uh, prohibitive. Uh, and uh, bluntly, financial math is much, much, much easier. Um, and so, yeah, but no, I, I, I was an engineer. I was working um, uh, working as an environmental engineer, basically process redesign, go into companies uh, which have various types of uh, emissions they shouldn't have uh, and, you know, do process redesign and, and, and build and remove those emissions as much as possible, if not uh, eliminate them completely, uh, lower your environmental footprint, yada, yada. Um, I was working in that. I was perfectly acceptable, decent engineer, I suppose, never got any real complaints. Um, I was working for one company kind of, uh, I worked for a few places, but the, I was working with one company for about nine, nine years. And, uh, you know, you start working for a company and they have a savings and investment plan and, you know, and now you're making a bit of money and it's like, oh, you know, maybe I can, uh, maybe I should start saving some money and thinking, look into this investment thing. And around about the same time, my mother was in her uh, was in her early fifties at the time, and she wanted to. They, I guess my parents, you know, they got us kids out of the house. And <laughs> they had some money to kick around, so they. My mother wanted to learn how to invest a little bit, and so I, I kid you not, I uh, I went. I was, I was going home uh, to visit my parents for Mother's Day, and I stopped at a bookstore and I bought her a couple of investing themed books because. I thought, you know, well, you know, she's talking about learning how to invest. Let's get her a couple of books. Uh, one of those books I have no memory of. I have no idea what it was. Uh, the second book was a book called The Molly Fool Investment Guide. And I thought, ah, this looks kind of kind of interesting. I mean, hey, they're calling themselves fools. That's funny. Um, so I gave my mom that book for Mother's Day. Uh, she never read it. Uh, about a year later, I was again home and I was, unable to sleep. So I figured I'd grab a book to read. That happened to be the book I grabbed to read. I stole it from her the next day. <laughs> I took it home to where I lived. And uh, she regifted it and never knew. Never knew. Yeah. Well, she never read it either. So, you know, um, but yeah, no, that's, that's how I actually got introduced to investing was ironically the Molly Fool Investment Guide. Uh, and then kind of from there, I just devoured that and then just Basically, they introduced me to Peter Lynch and to Warren Buffett, devoured the work of those men. Uh, Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street is still the investing book um, that I recommend to new uh, folks who are interested in the subject. I think I've bought that book personally about 12 times because someone will talk to me and say, I'm, I'm interested in investing, and I'll just give them my copy. And then I go buy it again, and then I give them, buy it again. Then I buy it again, and then I give someone else a copy a year later. And, and so, yeah, that, 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 and, and around about the time, uh, you know, I started getting real keen and, and I, you know, I was, so when was this? That would have been circa 97, 98. Um, so it's about the time the book came out just a couple of years. Before. It, it, it was fairly new and fresh. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, yeah, but so I, I just I, I and I just kind of started, uh, you know, started devouring everything I could read. It got it got kind of crazy. My uh, my then spouse at one point said to me, "You need to make some new friends." Um, because uh, I don't understand what you're talking about anymore, and I'm not terribly interested either, uh, which was, you know, hurtful. Um, now, that's, that's nothing that Jeff and I can relate with at all. <laughs> not even... <laughs> well, yeah. We're friends so that we have someone to talk to about this stuff. There you go. But, you know, <laughs> engineers go. is not a big, you know... It, 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 one of the things that comes with a with a highly math centric background, I'm I'm about to piss off all the engineers listening. So sorry. Um, people with a high math affinity tend to, um, I think, when they gravitate towards investing, they try to make it a math problem, and and there's math involved by all means, um, but it's almost like they kind of forget that there's more to it than math. There's human emotions. That there's a lot of um, BS involved occasionally from the uh, from the companies themselves. Um, there, of course, is you know both greed and fear that periodically raise their heads, and people forget you know the markets implode every ten years and have to relearn that episode every ten years. So it, it's kind of a it's kind it's of the the reality that you know no no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. No investing thesis survives first contact with a customer, mm -hmm. right? It's the realities that there's what we think could happen, and then there's what actually happens. Jim, and I think one of the things that I appreciate the most about you is that you have a, and we'll talk a bit about your, your, your process, um, and, and I think maybe this is a good time to kind of start that, but you've learned... I want to speak for you on this, but my observation of you knowing you for a while and following you as an investor and learning from you is that it seems like over time you've figured out a way to find a way to leverage the math, thinking about things like cash flows or asset values to find a margin of safety that you're willing to pay for something that you think is worth a lot more mm -hmm. based on what the business does in the real time and leverage that and to be disciplined and, and, to, to find winning investments. Maybe you can say that, describe your process in a much, much better way than I just did. Um, the, the key words there, I would say very much are, are cash flows. Um, I, I have this weird kind of, um, uh, I pretty much approach all investing as, as a story of cash flows. Uh, just to start. And so if a company doesn't have cash flows, I'm generally not interested. Um, I, I understand uh, the arguments, say, of a, a MongoDB, for example, uh, which I have owned and made money on, actually, um, but has no cash flow. The only reason I owned it is because of our friend Tim Byers said, hey, you should buy this. I said, ah, sure, why not? Uh, you know, I think I doubled my money and then I sold it and said, thanks, Tim. And then, of course, it went up fivefold from there, proving who the smart yeah. one is. And it's not me. It's Tim. Um, but no, uh, no, it's, it's a story. The, 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 it's a tale as old as time. That's borrowed conviction, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I can give you conviction, but most of my conviction, high conviction stocks tend to be, you know, ones you probably, well, maybe you've heard of, but a lot of people haven't heard of because I do tend to focus on the small and the, and the occasionally quite weird, um, Things quite often priced for death that, in fact, don't die. And if they don't die, um, they tend to multiply fairly quickly. Um, but, it, but it does all start with cash flows. And, and so, um, you know, and, and, and the, 
in theory, an investment is supposed to be the present value of all the cash it can throw off for the entirety of its life, discounted at an appropriate rate. Um, also called a discounted cash flow analysis. Yeah, but I mean, even there, I get into it like uh, I get uh, uh, Aswath Damodaran, who is considered to be a kind of the uh, the um, the godfather of the cash godfather flows. of cash flow evaluation. evaluation. Like yeah. you know, I mean, I I, I love his work. I, I mean, I used to when I would prep dinner when my kids were a lot younger, and I'd prep dinner. Uh, you know, I'd have one of his lectures on on the laptop just because, you know, because I'm a nerd and I'm going to watch this, you know, rather than listen to a podcast or watch TV or whatever. Uh, but, you know, like during the recent times of of um, of super low interest rates, you know, uh, Professor Demodorin, you know, being the godfather of valuation would would form a discount rate or he would generate his discount rate for any given company. And he would generate it based on kind of the classic methodology. So, you know, you take your risk free rate, your 10 year bond or whatever, uh, and then you take your beta. Beta is garbage, by the way. Uh, but you take your beta and you so beta, so beta. So the risk free rate, again, you mentioned like the 10 year bond. It's like here's like the benchmark for you invest money. You're going to get it all back and you're going to earn some yield. Right. So that's. That's that. And then beta, meaning volatility, and, and it's become a bullshit proxy for risk, right? Oh, it, it, it is absolutely – we can curse on this show. This is excellent. Uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely – It's a nice show. Beta, nice is, ab- show, yeah. beta is absolutely bullshit. Um, beta is uh, – all beta is, is – I'm going to push back a little bit. I'm going to push back a little bit. But, from from a discounting mechanism, uh, I, I will see that. From a rate. discounting mechanism, absolutely yeah. not. But from a risk perspective, beta is a real risk for anybody that holds a volatile investment within a short period of time, and they need to cash it out in that short period of time. Beta is a risk, but that person also bought the wrong asset class. Well, so I think those it, both things. The, the first thing you should probably be asking yourself is, how do I know that beta is statistically significant? And I'm right, willing to believe right. that that is a question that doesn't enter 99.9% of the heads of most people who actually use beta. How do I know this is statistically yeah. significant? Then if I can demonstrate it's statistically significant, which you can do because beta is a regression, uh, how, what, what is the actual 95% confidence interval? If I calculate a beta as 1.2, but that confidence, that's just an estimate. If the 95... 1.2 meaning it's 20% more, yeah. more volatile than, say, the index, like the S&P 500. Well, whatever, whatever you're regressing. Again, most betas are 60 months, and it's, it's the regression of uh, 60 months of the stock's return against 60 months of the index return. Uh, I, right. I always get a kick out of, you know, you can get different betas by, by measuring different markets. So, you, you know, I can, I can measure Apple, say, against the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, or the Dow, I suppose. I think it's components of all three. And I'm probably going to get different betas. Not probably. It's, Jim, it's, it's statistical <laughs> analysis. Of course it is. You know, yeah. you, you, can get, you can get the numbers to say whatever you want. If you torture them in the right way, well, and that's that's just it, right? And so, so you know, your your classic your classic way to, to come to a discount rate for 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 doing a discounted cash flow would be you know, the capital asset pricing model, the CAPM. You start with your ten year risk free rate, and then you you know add in beta multiplied by a risk premium to that risk free rate, and you know the 
beta's beta's garbage most of the time. You don't even know if the regression's that good. Frankly, most people don't even understand it. And, and this is actually a function of, of of an engineering my engineering background because I would do designed right. experiments in manufacturing firms. Like you know, we're trying to make a change, whatever. We would do a designed experiment, and we you know we do various regressions, and then they you know the the quality manager would say, oh, what's the uh, what's the R squared on your regression? And if it was under seventy five percent, meaning it, you know it explains. 75% of the variance and whatever you're looking at, uh, he would just throw it back at you and go, it's not good enough. And if you ever, def- if you ever found a beta that was, had a regression of 70 or an R squared value of 75%, I mean, that's the Holy grail. Most of them are like 30, you know? And so like, right. you know, it's like right. my quality engineering days, you know, the entire finance it's world. It's not a reliable enough no. piece of data to factor in. No. Is what you're saying. And, and then as well, too, with ultra low interest rates, you know, you had, you, had, you had people doing silly things like discounting Tesla at like, you know, six and a half percent. And it's like, no. Are you happy getting six and a half percent? Are you happy? Because a discount rate is, is just another way of, of saying, you know, if, if, I, if I calculate, you know, Tax the data out, and I say that stock ABC, I, my cash flow forecast discounted back to the present is equal and divided by the number of shares is equal to the present share price, right? You know, my the stock price is 100, and my calculated discounted cash flow value is also 100, and my discount rate is 6.5%. I am de facto saying I am happy getting 6.5% annually because that is what that discount – and it's like, okay, A, I ain't happy with 6.5%. Um, B, you know, interest rates can go up, right? And if they do, the then what? Also, we're, we, we're, we we're seeing the answer to that question yeah. in real time. Yeah, we also call that the, the Canadian housing market problem right now, but that's a whole other story yeah. you guys aren't interested in. <laughs> we, we've got our own problems in the side of the border too, that are, they, can they I, rhyme. They're in the same songbook, if yeah. nothing else. Can so, I jump in and ask a question, Jim? So sure. I, I've listened to you talk about um, your investing style a few different times, and I'm glad we're diving into it here. But one of the things I've always wondered for anyone who's been investing for a long time and has sort of honed their style or their their uh, process, how have you evolved? Like, where did you start? Like, when you first got into it, when you first read the Motley Fool Investment Guide, and you were sort of new to it, were you a different investor than you are now? Like, did you find your way to this sort of cash flow driven, valuation driven way of investing? Well, very. I mean, quite literally, when I read the Motley Fool Investment Guide, I was not an investor. Period. I was you immediately not, bought Amazon the next day. I did not. Um, <laughs> I, I was an engineer. I just thought it was kind of cool, and I started. I mean, it, it it changed. It obviously changed the course of my life, and it obviously changed my life in terms of what I was going to do. Um, but. I was, I mean, I may, I probably had some mutual funds at the company I was working for, the the savings and investment plan, right? Uh, I bought my first stock in 96 or 97. Uh, it was not, spoiler, it was not Amazon. Um, do you remember what stock it was? I do. It's, do it's, it's, it's it? gone now. It's a company called Blunt. Well, the company's around. The company's changed its name to uh, Oregon Cutting Systems or Oregon Cutting Tools or something. Uh, but basically, B-L-O-U-N-T, ticker symbol was B-L-T on the New York Stock Exchange. It uh, uh, it also happened to be my employer at the time. So um, The Chainsaw Company? Chainsaw Blades Company? That, that, is, the, yeah, that, is, the, uh, that is the company indeed. And it was a... Uh, I've got some Oregon Chainsaws. Blades, chains, I, hanging down in my basement right now. And uh, I, I probably, my master's thesis for my engineering 
master's degree is uh, was basically a process redesign for their chrome plating line in their Guelph, Ontario facility. So it's still running to this day, and we actually did some good work with it too. So thank you, Jim Gillies, for helping me cut down no, trees. No, no problem. But uh, no, so I, I I wasn't an investor, Jeff, at all. Like I mean, I was. You know, it was kind of weird the way that life unfolds because um, I thought I'd be an I thought I'd be an engineer, and then like this this hobby kind of grips me by reading the Motley Fool's you know, original book, and then I went through, like I said, the, the Peter Lynch and 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 um, you know, and a bunch of other stuff too, and I got you know like one up on Wall Street, which is basically you know all of this is useless. You should just index. Which sometimes there's some wisdom to that, to be honest with you. Um, but it, it, it uh, you know, when, when I talked earlier about you know engineers being very mathematically minded, um, you know, and so approach investing as a math problem. You ask how I've evolved. I got rid of that bad habit. Like I still do a lot of math behind my stuff, but it's not the be all and end all. I have, you know, I young me, young investor me was very much, you know. I'm looking for the 70 cent dollar and I'm going to sell it when it hits 99 or a hundred cents on the dollar. And of course that's stupid, but you know, and you try to, you try to uh, grow beyond that, but that is a real problem. And uh, I, I think I've overcome it. Um, but I do, like I say, I'm still, I'm still fairly um, valuation heavy and cash flow heavy. And I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I, it's not for everyone. I understand that. But, uh, you know, when, when the market takes its periodic implosions every decade or so, um, you know who doesn't get hurt? This guy, right? Because yeah. yeah. essentially, because I don't, I don't yeah. go into, I, I don't go into a lot of high growth stuff because for me, and this is, uh, it's amazing to me how much this gets forgotten, but growth is an input to value. Growth is an input to valuation. And so a company growing 3% in the right circumstance can be as exciting as a company growing at, you know, 53%. Because it gets back to what you're, what you're paying for the business, right? I think you have to be willing to pay, but, but you also, I think it's important. I want to, I want to interject this here because I think this is kind of value to the story. You were one of the first people at the Molly Fool to start talking about Shopify. I was right. Yep. So, you know, your your bona fides are not. You're not just, you know, you're not just picking up cigar butts by any means here, right? You're still focusing on again, and I think that 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 model. So the the Buffett model prior to him, the that that's an ass more of an asset play. Mm-hmm. And again, your focus on cash flows, buying those future cash flows at a very attractive price is a very different thing than trying to buy assets below their liquidation value. Yeah, I don't worry about liquidation value because it's the it's it's the extraordinarily rare company that gets liquidated, so it's not a terribly useful metric in my book. Uh, I do cringe a little bit sometimes when I look at uh, some of the parts analysis and valuations because it's like uh yeah it's only going to be useful if you know you have to break the parts apart so you know does it have something else to play with but yeah no i i was uh i was into shopify march or april of 2016 i think um Mm -hmm. and you know just to give just to paint a picture of that 
because I'm not, a, I, I, I don't, I, I, growth is a component. I, I, again, I reject this kind of, um, there are growth stocks and there are value stocks. I, I, re, I reject the premise because growth is a, is a, is an input to valuation. Um, but I, uh, I looked at this and I said, okay, I mean, obviously the cash flows for Shopify were uh, more theoretical, shall we say at that time than, uh, than actual, um, but you could see that you know, if this if this company if this company takes off and has the growth profile that we think it has, um, those cash flows are going to ramp very quickly and generate significant value. And 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 what is the limit? How do you, how do you think about so thinking about Shopify in 2016, Jim? Yeah. How do you think about something in that case? You have to be thinking about the secular tailwinds of e-commerce. And the importance of every merchant, everybody that's selling anything in the world, to have a web presence, to be online, to figure out how to do that, and you have to start thinking. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, you have to think about those, that that secular trend, but also you having to think about the total addressable market. And I know I hate, anytime I you hate have, Tam, I hate it. I hate it. No, I know. Well, let's be <laughs> honest. The, the, the Tam that a company put puts in its presentation is always bullshit. Always. I mean, it's it's you know. I, I, I'm going to say maybe the one company that consistently I don't think that's been the case with is Trex, but with everybody else that I've seen, it's general. You got to squint really hard and maybe take a couple shots before you can justify it. How do you think about that? I mean, I think with Shopify, where where is where are you think what are you imagining that's not in that you can't look at with you know a discounted cash flow model to get to okay Shopify is worth it. Is that, I mean, is it just the price that you're paying at that point for the size of the business? Just thinking about humanity and, and where things are going. I try not to think about humanity. I'm, I'm, where's the transition um, between the math and, and the real world here? With Shopify, well, to paint a picture on Shopify, when I bought it, it was a small cap. So yeah, yeah. you know, and the the logic that we were kind of bringing to bear on this was what what is the limit of how many small and medium-sized businesses can Shopify help and bring online? What is the limit on that number? And I will argue, and we argued at the time, there is no limit on that number. Um, the answer is more. Right. And and right. that's a very powerful answer, you know, because... And from where it was, you could probably easily say... Whatever it is, it's at least an order of magnitude bigger than it is now. Well, I mean, yeah, like uh, we yeah. we were sitting there going, like, now oh, this is, it, you know, I I and I hate when people do this, so people should roll their eyes right now uh, and just get out of the way. I hate when people compare something to the next insert name successful name right. here. Most because of the time, it's never going to be the next whatever. It's going to be something different. Well, yeah, just go buy Amazon then, right? If you want looking for the next Amazon, just go buy Amazon. And shut up. Um, but right. you know, the, right. the the conversations when we were looking at Shopify was, yeah, this has got Amazon esque potential, and you know. Did I like paying? I don't know. I think I bought paid nine times sales, which is another one of my major things that I hate. I hate the price of sales met. You didn't. You didn't hear people using the price of sales metric until about three years ago, and they were trying to justify their idiocy. But um, you know, now you've got. It's gonna be, my mission on this this show is going to be to make Jeff laugh behind the scenes. He's got his mic off. Um, 
He's, but, he's laughing a lot. But, but no, but I mean, like, seriously, like the price of sales multiple is, is it's a terrible multiple. You shouldn't use it. It's garbage. It's an, it's an empty number for the most part. It's an empty number. But, you know, and, and then you see people say, oh, I just bought this for 27 times sales. And I'm like, why do you hate your money? Like, don't do that. But, you know, but no, I paid nine times sales for, for Shopify. But, you know, when you truly have a, a true growth, how the hell do you guys get me talking about growth stocks? Um, when you, ha- when, you ha- when you truly have a growth opportunity that pans out, um, growth forgives a lot of sins. And so, you know, when I paid nine or just slightly over nine times sales for Shopify, that does not mean that, you know, three, four years later, you should be p- comfortable paying 70 times sales because you shouldn't be. And we know what's happened since then. But I think three years after I paid nine times sales, if you looked at the you know, what the sales had grown, the actual growth profile had come in here. And I'm hoping no one's going to fact check me here because it's roughly right, but it's precisely wrong. So, you know, get over it. Um, I think you, you know, I, I was paying nine times trailing sales, but I was paying something like 0.9 times 20, 20 sales. Like it was, right. you know, like growth forgives a lot of sins. And then of mm-hmm. course we hit the pandemic and pff, everything shoots up. It was even remotely, could be remotely considered, um, you know, work from home ish or, or whatever. But I, the other, the other Not thing is, well, I also had some friends who, you know, are fairly entrepreneurial and, and stood up various businesses. And one of them is a good friend of mine. Uh, he started, uh, an online music streaming and, and I'm like basically like an iTunes business, but for Canadian independent music. And his partner was, uh, was a, was a musician from the Canadian music scene in the nineties. And, um, you know, they, uh, they're both tech guys today. They both did a lot of work and, uh, they were just clunking along on this, this stupid project. And, uh, you know, they were getting, you know, they were doing it and they weren't happy with it cause they're, you know, taking a hundred hours of their real job as well. And, and then this on the side, uh, they were doing, they were farming it out, code building to, you know, offshore code farms. That was, flying like a stone kite and then they switched over to shopify software before shopify was public they actually adopted i think in 2014 or 2015 and uh you know and and my friend is just like yeah we're we will shut down the business before we leave shopify so i'm like okay well now that's an interesting piece of scuttlebutt right there and like yeah. I said, by this point in time, it was it was uh, it was public. And so as as we're as we're banging this around, I think we I think we put it in Stock Advisor Canada first, and then I was at the time running a service called Pro Canada, so we very quickly threw it in Pro Canada as well. And then, like I said, I bought it myself, and I've never sold a share. And well, like I said, it was a small cap when I bought it, so you can you can infer my return from there, I suppose. So where, where do you, where do you like to find, go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. Go no, ahead. I, I wanted to go back to something Jim said, because it's funny when, when, when you said how, when I asked you how you were evolving or how you've evolved as an investor, you pointed out like sort of having to stop being so mathematical about everything. Cause that was your training. And it, it, it was interesting to me because that's sort of the opposite for myself where, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm an educator and a musician by trade. So I'm trying to learn more about the math behind investing and not trying to untrain my math brain. But what it what it what I wanted to ask was, you know, we, we talked about how price to sales is sort of, you know, not the best metric or not a good metric. So for someone who's like newer and still hasn't wrapped their head fully around discounted cash flows and things like that, are there any valuation metrics you do think are 
a good place to start wrapping your head around valuation without having to go down that that math rabbit hole for someone who's just learning? That's a great question. Um, what I would point it to, unfortunately, does tend to be fairly cash flow esque. But you asked, and you know, it's your dollars. So that's fine. Um, I if if you want a shorthand metric. Um, and it's not some weird financial company or an insurance company where we might play with price to book or price to tangible book. And again, I'm not a big fan of these these one-off ratios because I think I think valuation is kind of a tapestry, and you want to look at it through as many lenses as possible, including DCF. Um, but one thing I like to use is, um, and this is going to get the purists shooting me because they're going to say this is uh, mixing debt and equity, and I'll say I don't care. Uh, but is uh, enterprise value to free cash flow? So that you know, you got to do some work on that, right? Enterprise value, of course, is market cap plus net debt or minus net cash, depending on your point of view. Um, but then, uh, you know, and then free cash flow. Be sure you calculate a reasonable free cash flow. One of the things I like to say is beware, co- beware companies that tell you what their free cash flow was. Um, because their definitions change. Um, it sometimes does not reflect the accounting either. The, the, there's all kinds of definitions, but the simplest definition is operating cash flow, which you find on the statement of cash flows. Operating cash flow less CapEx. Okay, boom. Um, CapEx meaning capital expenditures, right. which you find on the next page. Which is, which is in the investing section of the cash flow statement. I, I, when I talk about free cash flow, it's you start with that simple definition. Cash flow from operations minus capex, but there's even some subtleties in there. Like for example, uh, the accounting boards, at least in Canada, I think in the U.S., but they—they, they, I'm pretty sure in the U.S. because I do this already. Um, operating leases used to be off balance sheet. You know, a restaurant chain, you know, leases their facilities for 15 years or 10 years or whatever, right? They—they they don't own the land, they don't own the real estate, they just lease it. Okay. And so that was in the form of an operating lease. And that was off balance sheet because I don't own the building. I don't own the land. And, and then the pointy heads decided we're going to bring that onto the balance sheet. So they, they come up with the present value of it and call it debt equivalent on the liability side. And then they come up with yeah, the, this is a recent, this is a recent thing. That yeah. Well, Canada started in 2019. I'm Canadian for those who don't know. It's about, uh, it's about the same in the States. Yeah. You know, I live, I live in America's hat. So, uh, or you guys live in Canada's pants, one of the two. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm going to get Jeff to crack, I swear. Um, As Robin Williams said, you live in a loft apartment over a really cool over, party. Over a cracked in. <laughs> Apologies to all my American friends, but you know sometimes you make the rest of us a little nervous. Anyway, um, I, love, I love the U.S. I come there like all the time. In fact, I'm going to New York in three weeks. Um, but no, I mean, I, 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 by bringing, um, by bringing on, uh, operating leases on a balance sheet, what that did was okay so now i i have a i have a debt equivalent allegedly on the liability side i have a right of use asset on the asset side and then as i make payments you know uh some of that gets some of that works down the the um the right of use asset okay and some of it and the liability both offset and they, they basically off but the problem is on the statement of cash flows the amortization of that right of use asset as you pay that lands in operating cash flow which biases up your operating cash flow but the actual payment out the door the cash flow out the door is stuck down in the financing section of the cash flow statement 
Okay, so you would best be if if you're going to count the amortization, the positive cash flow hits. If you're going to count that in your free cash flow, you would best be also counting the payment of that liability. And they kind of they kind of broke the cash flow statement when they changed that. Okay. Uh, but yeah. you, you should bring it together. Uh, if the company, for example, is, uh, you know, CapEx, you know, I bought a new car or a new truck or a new facility, that's a CapEx we all understand. But if the company is, is engaged in, you know, software development and for, for their own use, you know, and, and capitalizing that, you would best treat that as CapEx. And it's, it's a drag on free cash flow. You want to come up with a reasonable estimate of, free cash flow. That's kind of step one. And then, like I said, you compare EV enterprise value to that free cash flow. Then the second part, and this is kind of something that this is what I call a mass balance, which is, uh, I think I invented it. Invent is probably a really strong word. Um, you did now. You, you, I did now. now. You're I'm right. going to claim it. For the purposes um, of this show. Well, yes. like, it, it actually comes from the engineering background, right? So when you'd, you'd have a reactor, you'd have a plating tank, or you'd have, you have a chemical process and you're trying to track you know, basically mass in and mass out. You want to, you want to track the, you know, if you're running a plating tank, you want to know that, you know, like say you're, you're doing, you're, you're doing chrome plating, for example. Um, you know, that's chromic acid, chromium atoms in, and then basically chromic acid touches anything, it's hazardous wastes. So you want to also measure and then minimize chrome, chrome out. Uh, most chrome that goes in actually goes out as waste. So that's a whole other story. Uh, but you want, uh, and you want to track basically in versus out, or you want to track it called a mass balance. So I just applied that type of thinking to investing or to an analyzing companies. But I'm not doing, you know, lead or chromium or, you know, you know, pick your, you know, hydrochloric acid, pick, pick whatever chemical I I'm using cash. And so, money. yeah, I'm using, I'm doing money. And so what I like to do is look at the history of a company. Uh, what is their free cash flow or their cash generation been? And then I want to see what they do with it. Okay. Um, and so it gives you insight into management's capital allocation skills, like like uh, one company that that no one thinks about now, right? Like no one no one cares about this company. Trust me, I'm I'm, I'm deliberately not going to tell you the ticker because I'm going to give you um, I, I'm going to give you some superlatives, and you tell me if you're interested. Okay, so th this is a company twenty twenty one twenty two billion dollar market cap. Okay, so not small, but not huge. Um, cash engine requires very little to maintain the business. So consistently cash flow positive, um, fortress balance sheet today, more debt than, ca uh, more cash than debt. They got about eight and change billion in, in, uh, cash, about seven and change in debt, uh, free cash flow over the past four quarters, just shy of $2 billion, uh, probably a little depressed because of pandemic hangover, but whatever, uh, you know, so that sounds pretty good. Um, you know, consistently cash. Flow sounds positive. like it trades for 10 times free cash flow to me. Uh, it trades for about 11 times free cash flow actually. Uh, but here's the thing. What is this company done with it? So again, it's about a $22 billion company. Um, over the past eight and a half years, about eight and a half years ago is when the, the share count peaked. Okay. During its growth years, um, share count peaked and, over the past eight and a half years, the company has bought back 58% of their shares. And by the way, they haven't reported Q3. I am, 
I, w- I would bet a very large amount of money they, that number will go past 60% by the end of this year. They got two quarters to report in this year. Um, in fact, uh, between, and they also pay a dividend. So between their dividend and their, um, and buying back more than half the company, um, has cost them about $38 billion. Now they've made about $24 billion over those eight and a half years. So, okay. So most of that got financed by their, by their, uh, just, their self-generated cash. Um, a bunch of it came from discontinued operations. They've sold a couple of things or or, or spun them off. Uh, so they got about another six and a half billion from that. So right there, that's thirty point five billion. And the rest of the money just came from uh, you know they're still net cash positive, more cash than debt. Just eight and a half years ago, they had a lot more cash than debt, so they just worked through that. Uh, but you know they they've not. It's a household name. Uh, the stock price has probably done about an annualized return about 9.7% before dividends. So it's been middle of the road, um, but currently trading for 11 times. But, you know, a company that has this kind of a cash flow engine that is eating themselves. It's not Apple, by the way, because it's a little smaller than Apple. Um, but it's been eating themselves. But, you know, this type of cash engine, is anyone interested in a company that, they, you know, if, if I told you, like I said, they bought back 58% of their stock, yielding 2.2%, they're going to probably do another $2 billion in cash flow this year. It's going to be returned to you via dividends and buybacks. I'm very confident in saying five years from now, there'll probably be another, you know, the share count will be 25 to 30% less than it is today. Is anyone interested in this company? I'm raising my hand. Yes, me. Cool. <laughs> Are you still interested if I tell you it's eBay? Wow, Interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like, and, and so you well, talk- because we know, right. So now there's, there's the math and then there's the story, right. And we know that eBay, their management has kind of done some dumbass capital allocation oh, things. Oh, 1 years. billion percent. I, I've written right? about that. I mean, like right? whether it's now look, okay, to be fair, to be fair, they did sell StubHub at the absolute best possible time. That's four, the one they got right. $4.05 billion that check cleared in February of 2020. And in March 2020, basically anything you would need a stub for got canceled for two years. So well done, right. guys. Um, right. But this is also the crew that brought back, you know, $9 billion from overseas, you know, and willingly paid a $3 billion tax bill. That they didn't have to because I think within two years, no reason to. Well, within yeah. two years, they got the you know you could bring back with very little tax uh, penalty. Right. Um, they right. they owned um, they owned Skype. You know they they sold they owned Skype. They sold it for not much more than they paid for it many years later, uh, and then eighteen months later, Microsoft paid I think three x what they sold it for now or what they valued it at. Yeah. Now, okay, that might be because Microsoft likes to make dumb acquisitions during the era of Balmer, but still. Yeah, we haven't even talked about PayPal. Uh, well, they bought PayPal, and then, of course, they spun PayPal off. Um, and I was my, my annualized return, because it is eight and a half years, that goes back to the end of 2013, and um, right. PayPal was spun off right. in July of 2015. So I mean, I am, I'm including the PayPal results there. Yeah, I, and disclosure, I own both eBay and PayPal. I got my PayPal from owning eBay, because I, I own it at the time. Uh, I own eBay now. I think I bought it three or four months ago, but uh, uh, I've had option positions. And it's also been, I, as you mentioned, I, I think you mentioned, um, 
or maybe it was a pre-show. Uh, I used to run Motley Fool Options. I did Motley Fool Options for 10 years. I've been in front of five or six services for the Fool now. I've lost count half the time. Um, but I ran, I'm going to ask you an op- options question in a minute. Sure. Here. Well, I mean, I was just going to say e- eBay that. has been eBay has been one. eBay and GameStop, I think, were my two favorite companies to ever play options games with. Uh, eBay still is. GameStop has been destroyed by the by the meme idiots, but uh, but eBay is still fun to play with. So. I actually own eBay entirely because of writing cover calls. Brilliant. Of course, if I if, if you want to write covered calls, you know your best be okay losing the shares because. No, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but. You know, and look, I, I, there's a lot you can do with cover calls to kind of roll up and roll up and play with it. So, yeah, you, just because the stock price, of course, goes above the strike doesn't mean you're going to lose it. There, I think the eBay one is, is – is, I want to circle back to that before I ask my options question, Jim. Sure. I think the eBay one is really interesting because it's – again, it's kind of that combination of the math and then the people. And we look at eBay as investors, and by and large, there's kind of there's kind of two – I think it's relatively binary – for the people that know eBay or know anything about it or have any interest, you look at it and you're like, yeah, it's an okay business. People that haven't opened up the hood and seen like the economic output of the business, but it hasn't ever really been very well run. And what it does is not really an area where there's a ton of growth, right? So people focus on the growth. They focus on kind of some of the miscalculations by management over the years and the perception of the business without looking at the case that you've made that you can pay you know 11 times free cash flow for a solid cash generating business well right? and what and are they going to do with that cash flow that's the key and what right? they're going to the do key. with that cash flow is they are going to keep giving it to you and they are going to you know give it to you via dividends and they're going to buy back shares and right. at making some, your piece of the pizza a little bit bigger yeah. Every year. Well, right. and, and like I said, over the uh, over an eight and a half year, they bought in 58%, you know, which is, which means if you just, if you've owned it this entire time, and I haven't, but, uh, um, you know, but if you own it, you, you now have a 72% larger piece of the business, the inverse of what they bought back. Hey, friends, that was the first part of our interview here with Jim Gilley. So be sure to tune back in for the second episode. It's available right now where you get your podcast. So check that out. And as always, we want to remind you, we like to ask these important questions about investing and give our answers. But of course, Jeff, is it up to the to our listeners? They've got to find their own answers, right? They have to find their own answers. Absolutely. Can they do it? They can do it. You can do it. All right, Jeff, I'll see you here for this second, second part of this in just a minute, okay? Don't go anywhere. I'm not. I'm going to stay right here. Okay, perfect. Perfect.